You're listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we are talking about a trend that is very close to my heart. It is the Indigenous Ownership Movement, at least that's what I'm going to call it. Around the country, First Nations and other Indigenous groups are becoming owners of businesses in resources to real estate that operate in their territories and beyond. Financing, leadership, all sorts of issues need to enable this trend to occur. But occurring it is, on the East Coast, the Mi'kmaq First Nations are owners of the largest seafood company in Canada now. The Inuit community of Inukajak in northern Quebec is 50% owner of a hydro project. In Ontario, Six Nations are major players in energy storage. In Manitoba, Consortium of First Nations owns the port of Churchill and the rail line to it. Recently, 23 First Nations and Métis communities in northern Alberta completed a $1 billion deal to acquire a 12% stake in seven regional pipelines. And next door in British Columbia, 16 of 20 First Nations along the coastal gas lane took out options to purchase 10% of the project. Nearby, the Haiza First Nation is in late feasibility studies to build its own LNG floating export facility in Kitimat. And of course, you'll all recall that the government of Canada purchased the TMX, Trans Mountain Pipeline Project, several years back with the intention of selling it to Indigenous ownership. And we await to hear word on that over the next while. So it's a movement, as I say, but it's no slam dunk. Work has to be done to ensure this opportunity at real economic sovereignty is seized, which brings us to the recently released Roadmap Project, an in-depth report from the First Nations Financial Management Board, which many people may have not heard of, but it's a key institution behind the ownership movement and the ability to raise and apply capital toward greater economic sovereignty for First Nations. The 15-year-old FMB is a nonprofit First Nations organization that helps with planning and development of financial capacity for First Nations across the country. And the Roadmap Project, a recently completed publication, is designed to secure and advance the positive trends in which FMB has played an instrumental role. It provides realistic and attainable options for communities to consider. Okay, that's a lot for me, enough for me. So here to discuss the Financial Management Board and its mission are two members of the leadership team with us today. Harold Kalla is FMB's executive chair. He's a member of the Squamish Nation located in British Columbia. He spent many years working in international business before bringing his expertise home to Squamish to help negotiate economic development, land management, and finance. And he served eight years on Squamish Council. Jordy Hungerford is CEO of FMB. He is a Gwich'in. He has experience also from British Columbia. He has experience in finance and financial law. He's also an alumnus of the Action Canada program that the Public Policy Forum has operated for the past five years. And we welcome Harold and Jordy to Policy Speak. Jordy, welcome to Policy Speaking. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you guys, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think we all have a lot to learn. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of progress made, a lot to learn. You guys have been doing some fascinating work here. But let's just start by just establishing 
for people who aren't familiar with the First Nations Financial Management Board, what it is, why the world needs one. Well, the First Nations Financial Management Board was one of three institutions created by the Fiscal Management Act, the federal act that was led in its development by First Nations for First Nations to support the exercise of fiscal powers, gain access to capital, and to build an accountability framework that allowed the rating agencies to look at our system and approach and provide First Nations with the ability to go to the capital markets directly at the same level of engagement that I guess the capital markets have with other orders of government. In other words, at comparable costs and comparable terms. And what we are is the gatekeeper to that process by ensuring that there is good administrative governance and financial management systems in place in those First Nation communities. You've been at this for about 15 years. How did it look 15 years ago and how does it look today? When this legislation was passed, it was not clear how many First Nations would become part of it. Certainly, there was a lot of interest in British Columbia and a lot of interest in Atlantic Canada, but I think there weren't many communities. In fact, it was suggested maybe 25. Where we're at today is that after the next scheduling, there'll be 345 of the 579 Indian Act bands scheduled to the Fiscal Management Act because it is optional legislation and you must schedule yourself to the Act. So 345 of those have now decided that they would like to consider using the tools of the FMA. And I don't think anybody anticipated that at the time that we passed the legislation. It was aspirational for sure, but it's become a reality for a whole host of reasons. It's grown significantly in terms of headcount as well to be able to work with and service so many nations across Canada. So we started with an office in West Vancouver, and now we have additional offices in Winnipeg, Ottawa, and Montreal. And we've grown our staff component from maybe about 15 people eight years ago up to 45 when I joined a couple of years ago. And now today, we're up around 95 staff. So we have a significant footprint to be able to assist nations. In the introduction, I mentioned a number of examples of Indigenous equity ownership that are occurring across the country. How important is the Financial Management Board to that happening? Well, there's sort of two ways that we are very important to that process. The first is to assist nations in getting ready to participate in projects, to have the financial and administrative governance in place, and to be able to consider about how to manage the opportunity, get free prior and informed consent from the community, and then to manage the benefits that come from those kinds of opportunities. The second is, is that we, as Harold said, are a gatekeeper in terms of the borrowing under our sister organization, the First Nations Finance Authority. So if nations do choose to borrow from them, they require to have a financial administration law that we give an opinion on, and then they also need to have a financial performance certificate. I don't want to stick on this for too long, but I do think it's important to understand because capital is the challenge. And there's been other challenges, which we'll talk about as we get into the roadmap. But if you just sort of take one deal, sometimes I hear from First Nations who had made investments, let's say various Mi'kmaq nations and Clearwater, that it's sometimes a challenge for it to become, quote, bankable. And maybe they even want more equity bankable. So maybe just, I know you're involved in the Clearwater deal. How could you just explain what it is that you enable to happen there? We enabled access to the capital that was required to get the fishing licenses through a number of First Nations that were scheduled to the Act, who were certified by the Financial Management Board. By certified, you mean? 
they received their financial administration law and financial performance certificates that enabled them to borrow from the finance authority. Those are the two conditions precedent that you need to have. And some of them had gone the final step and achieved financial management system certification. But it was because of that, that the First Nations were able to approach the finance authority with their existing revenue streams and go to the capital markets to be able to secure the $250 million that they needed to acquire the fishing licenses, which then got vended in to the Clearwater transaction. This would not have happened had those communities not begun that process a year or two before to get ready for the opportunities that were coming before them. This is one of the things that I think is important. You can't wait for the opportunity to be upon you when you choose to start the process. Our First Nations need to get themselves into a position now where as opportunity comes before them, they have the capacity to be able to respond to it. Maybe it would be helpful, Ed, to just add that in terms of our processes and what we do with First Nations is once they're scheduled to the act, once they choose to work with us, they work with us to develop a financial administration law. And so they work with our teams. We have a model law. And if their law is similar enough to our model law, we give an opinion that it is similar. And that allows them to then try and become certified under our two certification processes. And the first one is the financial performance certification. And so there are a number of different financial ratios that we look at. And if they meet all of those ratios, we then give them the certificate. And the certificate allows them to then borrow from the finance authority. And then we have a financial management system certification process. And if they show that they are implementing their financial administration law, so we do a number of checks and we also provide capacity development assistance for the nation to be able to get to a point where they can apply for certification. But if they meet the standards, we then certify them. And that indicates that at that point in time, the nation has very high level of governance and administrative capacity. And does that matter also for? People who are on either the other side of the deal selling or the people with whom they're partners, let's say in Clearwater Premium Brands or in other projects that you've certified them. Is that a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval that raises comfort levels to get deals done? Yes, it does. There's no question of it because the processes that they must go through as a result of our certification gives the private sector a good indication that they're operating on the same plane as everyone else. Okay, so that's how we establish the bases for being able to go forward in the world where we're at. And I think that takes us to the roadmap. You've just published a major look at things that have been done, things that need to be done in order to facilitate this trend towards greater Indigenous ownership, which is, of course, an expression of sovereignty. But I look to you to tell me more about it. So just let's start with walking us through what the roadmap project is why it's important, and then we'll get into, you know, what its major findings and recommendations are. Well, I think we relied upon discussions with the nations that we work with. As we indicated earlier, we will be working shortly with 345 nations, and many of these nations are at different levels of development. So we're able to get feedback from them in terms of what they would like to see, what kind of options they would like to be able to consider going forward with respect to primarily economic reconciliation. And we also have the value of having 30-odd years of experience with Harold Kella and also 30-odd years experience with other leaders in the First Nations fiscal management 
impact organizations, and in particular, Manny Jules, who is the chief commissioner of the First Nations Tax Commission. And so through getting feedback from these channels, we're crystallizing some thought in terms of where we see the possibilities with economic reconciliation. And so we wanted to put that out there, have some feedback from the communities, have some feedback from government. And so far, it's been quite amazing in terms of the positive feedback. Harold, did you want to add something? Part of the reason we wanted to produce something like Roadmap is it wasn't clear to us as institutions under the FMA that there was a clear vision of how you move forward around UNDRIP, FPIC, ESG, reconciliation. Nobody was presenting something, in our view, that allowed for some consideration of things that were needed to be able to achieve those things. And based upon our practical experience, Roadmap contains some suggestions from ourselves on what is needed to achieve economic reconciliation under it and recognition of the inherent right. That's what was striking to many that we presented this to in Ottawa and the provinces, is that this is a clear vision of a pathway to achieving some of that around the economic development, reconciliation, and fiscal provision. And I think that that's what's been appreciated by everyone that we've spoken to, is that we're able to articulate that in a way that no one else ever has. You both have talked about economic reconciliation. I guess that's a form of reconciliation that perhaps hasn't had as much emphasis for some people as others. Could you just describe what you're thinking of, what you mean by economic reconciliation, and do you think it's getting its due attention? It's starting to. I mean, this gets to be a very personal perspective. I look at our constitutional rights. What does it mean that you've got the right to self-government? What is that government relationship with the Federation? These are big questions that I think need to be considered. And so from our perspective, we need to be in a position where we have not only this kind of social and human component of reconciliation, but you need to be in a position where you've got the fiscal component to it. Because if transfer systems, as we've seen them with the federal government, were going to work, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in today. And we think that we need to invest in those matters that allow for economic reconciliation to create the platform for employment, better social conditions, and contributions to the Canadian economy, more importantly. Instead of being just part of the gross national expenditure, we'd like to be part of the gross national product. And I think that's the philosophy that we've been looked at as a social matter by government. We've never been looked at as a government or a component of the economic well-being of this country. And that's changing because of the impediments that major natural resource projects have been facing in this country. The world has changed. You're not going to be able to engage in these kinds of activities without First Nation participation now. And so how do we get our communities up to a level where they can participate and contribute to those kinds of conversations is really the challenge that we face. And it's one of the reasons why I think there is more emphasis now on economic reconciliation and what it might mean. There are many examples of that happening. How do you give effect to Supreme Court of Canada decisions like the Marshall decision? Well, you create a Clearwater kind of transaction. We sometimes fear these decisions that are the Supreme Court are on Aboriginal rights and title instead of looking at mechanisms to include them in the economic fabric of this country. Let's explore the policies that need to be put in place to better enable that. Obviously, there's a trend line that's occurring, which is positive. 
you have a wheel in the report and at the center of the wheel is self-determination. And then flowing out from that are capacity, sustainability, authority. But then I think you get into the building blocks that have to be better put in place. So Jordi, I don't know if you want to start here, but maybe you could tell us what a couple of those important policies, building blocks that need more work if we're going to fulfill this vision of economic reconciliation, Indigenous ownership. Some of them are basic, but a little bit dry. And one area is in statistics and understanding what's going on in Indigenous communities. We were asked by Indigenous Services Canada to determine what the size of the Indian Act economy was during COVID because they wanted to plan for supports for Indigenous communities and reserves. And they had no idea what the size of the economy was. And Stats Canada doesn't know either. So we need some kind of way to measure and through measurement, develop better policies so that communities can respond to what's going on economically and other levels of government can also understand better what's going on. We also see a real gap in infrastructure. So for example, there's probably somewhere north of a $30 billion infrastructure gap right now between reserves and similar communities that would be nearby that aren't Indigenous. And so we need some mechanism there to be able to roll out more infrastructure and to have the infrastructure managed and operated by Indigenous-led organizations. And so one of those organizations that we're proposing under the roadmap is the creation of the First Nations Infrastructure Act, or sorry, the First Nations Infrastructure Institute. And so we're working right now with the federal government and the First Nations Tax Commission to try and move that forward in legislation. What that organization would do would be to assist communities in considering their infrastructure needs, maybe aggregate communities together and come up with solutions for things like water and telecommunications and other kinds of infrastructure that would be needed in the community. So one of the missing ingredients here is institutional. We need more institutional capacity, is that right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. If you look at the legislation that created Indigenous Services Canada, it talks about the devolution, devolution of the delivery of programs and services into First Nation organizations. Well, there may be 579 Indian Act men, but there are varied size, varied populations, various states of development. You can't just dump this all on individual Indian Act bands. You need to create an institutional support for those organizations to be able to engage with Canada through their institutions to be able to provide those kinds of services. If we're going to devolve, we have to devolve into a comparable institutional framework that supports FPIC. Yeah, there's a quote in the report that you've pulled out and made magnified a bit, and I think it's important to what you're saying. You know, it says, Colonial policy left First Nations behind as Canada progressed and innovated for over 150 years. As First Nations find ways back into the national economy, institutional support and innovation will empower them to fast-track their growth in governments and economies. And there's a lot of ground to make up, so fast-tracking, I guess, is pretty darn important at this point, right? Yes. You know, I think Canada has a lot of experience in helping other nations around the world fast-track their economic development. And so some of the ideas we want to see implemented here in Canada. So the creation of an Indigenous Development Bank, we think, would be key to getting capital flowing to communities that wouldn't be able to otherwise borrow and Indigenous businesses that wouldn't otherwise be able to borrow. And then we also see a need for an Indigenous Economic Council to provide 
coordination of economic supports that are out there for communities and give advice to Indigenous governments and create new kinds of policy ideas that could spin off new kinds of institutions or new kinds of policy at all levels of government. We also see a need for each of the communities to develop a community plan for their economic development. And maybe, Harold, do you want to talk about the experience with Squamish? Starting with Delgamook, when that decision came down, the Squamish Nation developed a comprehensive land use plan and tabled it with government. And that kind of shocked people at the time in government. But that was a result of many months, if not a couple of years, of consultation with membership. And we then had a specific claim settlement that forced us to go back into membership and again consult with what people wanted for the future, what they saw for the future. And it allowed us, as a result of all that, to project a seven-generational plan about how we would manage to respond to the needs of our community. And while there was an enormous amount of technical work that was done in detail that was available, what we realized through the process is we really wanted to answer four questions that membership had asked us. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going to live? And how are we going to pay for it? So it gets down to those kind of basic questions. And within all of that was how do we preserve our language? How do we preserve our culture? How do you do all of those things when you don't have your own source of revenue? And I think that was a real turning point. But what it did is it laid a course for management and succeeding councils that there was a plan that we could all pursue. And where there may be political differences, it wasn't about what the plan would be, but how we might achieve it. Right. There's a lot of people like me in this country who wish we knew more and had known more about some of the obstacles that Canada threw in the way of First Nations and Indigenous peoples. And it's not something we learned about in school. It's something that we've been learning about more and more, I think, over the last 10 years. And I just wonder, you know, when you say colonial policy left First Nations behind, to some people that could sound like rhetoric, but there's like very, very specific manifestations of that. Maybe just for our listeners who aren't as familiar, you could just explain one or two or three of those manifestations that suppress the ability to develop economies. I think what we need to first understand is that there were economies. There was a social system before European contacts. We weren't animals in the woods, like some people would like to suggest. In fact, there were very sophisticated systems. And in the West Coast, there was a trading language called Chinook as an example of the kind of things that were undertaken. When we became colonized, we weren't allowed to do that anymore. We were actually legislated out of the economy. We weren't allowed to do that. In fact, you had to get permission in many cases from the Indian agent just to leave the reserve. You weren't allowed legal rights. The Department of Indian Affairs in its various forms was actually the governing body that presided over the affairs of the band and the band council. Often the Indian agent would come in with predetermined outcomes and present it to the council and get them validated through council motions. We were denied education. We were denied access to the ability to engage in the mainstream economy and sell our goods. So the result of all that was we became welfare dependent. We got trapped in a welfare economy. And that did not allow us to evolve the way Canada evolved in the last 150 years. We don't have the institutions. We were never considered as part of what that institutional evolution was going to be. We were a program by the federal government. There was no real engagement with the provincial government at all, even though 
the division of powers between 91 and 92 was not something we necessarily approved, but we were in a position where many of our interests were falling between the federal and the provincial government, and there wasn't a full engagement in that. So we were, I always say, locked in time. And then things started to change in the 50s, 60s, and particularly 70s. I think the Calder decision was, in my view, the turning point on some of this stuff. But we were denied access, legislatively denied access. And Jordy, you have a legal background, and I guess you were even denied access to law, to lawyers, to legal advice. Right. Hard to fathom, right? Yeah. So there was a case in Nigeria that went to the Privy Council. I think it was the early 1920s. And it essentially backed up the idea of Indigenous rights. And so when that case came down, it sent tremors around the Commonwealth. And one of the results of that was a prohibition on First Nations hiring lawyers. And lawyers themselves would be a crime for them to represent First Nations. So that's the kind of legislative issues, you know, in terms of indigenous ownership of their own land, reserves are owned by the minister. They're not owned by the nation or the band. The nations became legislated wards of state. And then in terms of education, if somebody went to a university or they wanted to become a professional, you know, a lawyer, a doctor, a priest, they were removed from the Indian Act. And so they would lose their connection to their community. Further to that, With respect to the residential schools, those were designed to be industrial schools. They weren't designed to educate individuals to become traders or engage in commerce. So you're left with a mentality of programs and being wards of the state and individuals not having the same opportunities and communities not having the same opportunities as the rest of Canada. Harold, somewhere I read you saying something along the lines of, we're not interested in fiscal transfers, we're interested in our own economies. I guess that's the philosophical basis here of reestablishing sovereignty. You say sovereignty was there, economic sovereignty was there and been suppressed for many years. So how do you think it's going? You know, are you fairly optimistic at this point? Are you frustrated? Well, it is moving forward in some respects. I want to preface those comments by saying, I believe the First Nations want to remain part of the Federation. That's first and foremost. As a member of the Federation, we need Indigenous government recognized. How First Nation governments fit into the Federation is what the conversation needs to be. How does the fiscal financing relationship work between Indigenous communities and the rest of Canada? I'm not suggesting for one moment First Nations should not be part of the equalization system in this country. What I'm saying is they shouldn't be dependent on that equalization system to survive. That's the fundamental difference, is we need to be in a position where we have the opportunity to raise revenue from our traditional territories or get a piece of that revenue that's being raised from our traditional territories to support ourselves in a way that we see appropriate. In the last couple of years, we've had, I think, the very significant moment of the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP. And how is that as a tool or as a springboard or as a, I guess, maybe a final gathering of rights together? How important is that to your mission? Well, I think it sets out a marker that actions can be measured against. That, to me, is the significant part of it. What it actually means today, I think, is that policies and legislation needs to be vetted through that lens where it wasn't previously. And I think that's an important piece. 
But, you know, ultimately, what the UN Declaration, in my view, suggests is that there needs to be a sharing of the decision-making processes in this country. There needs to be economic participation. There needs to be a recognition that the colonialization of our nations has created impediments that need to be overcome and recognized. It's a review of that history. It's not just some of the elements of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as an example need to be reflected in it. But we've shied away from the economic impacts of colonization. And I think what the UN Declaration will speak to is the need for Canada going forward to be in a position where it supports the reestablishment of Indigenous economies. Turning a free prior and, and informed consent part of UNDRIP, I've had various Indigenous friends of the public policy forum say there is no better guarantee that theft pick has been met than that there's Indigenous ownership in the project. Do you think that's a good litmus test? I think at a high level, I think it's a good litmus test, but ultimately, free prior and informed consent is about not just the council agreeing to something, but that the community and the membership also has to agree to a project going forward. But certainly, being able to align interests and be able to participate economically in a project, as opposed to being a bystander, or as Harold said in one of his conversations with one of the chiefs on the island, watching the trees coming by the reserve that used to be in the traditional territory and not getting any cut of it. I think it's a big part of FPIC is creating the space for Indigenous participation, either passively with respect to sharing of revenues or actively with respect to owning equity or debt in businesses and projects. There's more than 600 First Nations in this country. I don't think it would be reasonable to expect everyone to have the same view of anything at a moment as would not be reasonable to expect that in the provinces all agree with each other or anything else of that sort. Nonetheless, it seems there's an expectation in a lot of places that First Nations are anti-development. And then you get things like the coastal gas link and 16 of 20 on the route decide to become owners and invest in that project. Harold, I can see because nobody else can see us, but we can see each other on our Zoom discussion here. And I could see when I said, you know, there's an assumption that people are anti-development, you made a face. I think there are two factors that need to be considered here. One is what is the impact on your traditional territory? How might that impact be managed? So the environmental assessment process, the cumulative impacts, environmental impacts, which is not something that's always considered in that assessment. So again, part of the decision-making to proceed. I think many First Nations want the opportunity to participate on an ongoing basis. They want to see employment. They want to see, I guess, life cycle benefits arising out of these particular types of initiatives so that their communities can gain employment and gain education and gain experience. They can start to integrate into the mainstream economy and gain the skills and exposure and experience that's necessary. So when you look at those communities around Costa Gaslink, or you look at the 58 communities along the corridor of Trans Mountain, all of those communities are benefiting from the kind of arrangements that are being struck. In the case of Trans Mountain, it's 11% of the workforce. $3.5 billion worth of the contracts that have been given on Trans Mountain have been to Indigenous joint ventures and businesses. There's impact benefit agreements, and now they're starting to talk about ownership. So those are the kinds of things that are attractive to communities because it gives them a tangible benefit over the long term and a recognition of the need for there to be consideration of some of their interests. 
In the case of Trans Mountain, as an example, the route of the pipeline has been altered to respect indigenous interests in the route itself, going over, for instance, grave sites and those kinds of things, or culturally sensitive areas. That's the kind of opportunity when it's seen and visible is attractive to First Nations. And for that reason, many First Nations are not so much anti-development, but want to say in how these projects are developed and want a share in the long-term benefits that these projects will provide to the rest of the country. As we get near the end of this conversation, so if you had one initiative, one way, particularly government or corporations should be embracing as we move forward, and I recognize, I say that in the context, recognizing that most of what you're saying, a lot of what you're saying here in the roadmap is about the need to have Indigenous-led institutions that build capacity and be sovereign in that matter. But if there's one thing that your interlocutors in Canada could do, what would that be? I'll start with Jordy and then end with Harold. Well, I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission call to action number 92 talked about what businesses can do. And a big part of it is educating themselves, particularly the senior leadership, on what happened with the history of Indigenous people in Canada. And it's not a two-hour kind of education session. It needs to be a comprehensive one. It'll challenge assumptions. It'll challenge some cognitive dissonance for some individuals that take it. They also, in the call to reconciliation, talk about having more Indigenous people at all levels in the organization. And that builds capacity to understand Indigenous issues. And it also allows to bring that diversity and point of view into the organization. There's a statistic with CBCA, Canada Business Corporation Act companies, the number of TSXV listed issuers that had senior management that was Indigenous. And I think the number last year was zero. So you have to ask yourself, how are these predominantly mining and oil and gas juniors developing capacity to understand Indigenous issues when their business is very focused on overlap of Indigenous rights? And then being able to have businesses report. In Australia, they have something called a reconciliation action plan concept. And it's starting to pick up some speed here in Canada. Deloitte and KPMG now have a reconciliation action plan. And many of the law firms are moving towards it as well. But in Australia, it's very common for businesses. And so I'd like to see businesses in in Canada really think through how to reconcile with Indigenous peoples and to create policies there and then to report on it. And I think through reporting, we'll be able to have more of a dialogue with business in Canada and to drive economic reconciliation. Fabulous. Harold? I think education is going to be a big part of this with the non-Indigenous community. I think until they understand why they're facing some of these situations when they try to deal with it, just you know, the better off it's going to be. So I think a description of those kinds of things, you know, I mean, I was at a board meeting yesterday where people couldn't understand why a particular community was so obsessed with the fact that they wanted to blow up some rocks next to a ferry terminal. And what they don't understand is that it doesn't matter whether it's a provincial crown or a federal crown, Indigenous community seat is the crown. And there are too many unresolved issues with the crown. And I think it's important for people to understand that kind of dynamic and the need for them to engage with governments to kind of address those issues. I think Canada and communities need to be prepared to invest and to not look at it as a cost. 
but an investment to create a long-term benefit that will see First Nation communities outgrow the Canadian economy in the long run. Too often, we look at these things without looking at the long-term benefit of what can be achieved in these relationships. And I think that is something that if I could say, what do we need to do? That's one of the things that the crowns need to do, both provincial and federal. And you're seeing some actions like in Alberta for those kinds of things to happen. I think that's going to be critically important to advance the Canadian economy because the private sector also wants to know how some of the aspirations First Nations may have in their goals to participate in the economy could ever be achieved. There are some conversations taking place in Canada today through Natural Resources Canada that could shed some light on some of those issues. And I think that's going to be important. Ultimately, I think we have to be prepared to share. And Canada needs to recognize that colonization has not allowed First Nations to develop the financial capacity they need to participate in the economy at the levels that the economy needs them to participate. We don't have the ability to participate in multi-billion dollar projects, yet we have the ability to impede those and in some cases see them not occur. Governments and private sector need to see how you can bridge that gap. Accommodation is more than cost avoidance now. Often, in my view, accommodation was seen because it was just shoved off to the private sector. Accommodation was evaluated within the private sector as well. If we don't do anything, what is it going to cost? And if we do something, let's match those two philosophies up and see what we can do. Well, there's a much broader issue now that isn't solely within the private sector's control. So what is the fiscal relationship going to be? What fiscal capacities, what revenue sharing is Canada prepared to undertake? And how is Canada prepared to support our participation in the mainstream economy? Those are the single most impediments. If you look at the reasons why some communities have been successful, it's because they have developed own source revenue and they have access to capital. Those are two fundamental issues that we need to confront as a reality of moving forward. Okay, well, I want to thank you both. I mean, Jordy cited the call to action 92 and the Truth and Reconciliation Report, which behooves all of us to educate ourselves. And I want to thank you both for helping educate me, helping educate listeners of policy speaking. I think that's how you bridge gaps and that's how you make progress move forward. And you talk about creating a path forward and you definitely have one in the work you're doing. And I think most people want to get behind it. They need the means to get behind it, and that's what you're all about. So thank you, Jordy Hungerford. Thank you, Harold Kalla. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. At this point in the program, we'd like to do a shout-out for one of those members of PPF going above and beyond the call of duty. And this week, we want to say how PPF proud we are of Scotiabank which announced a three-year partnership with Rainbow Railroad, an international LGBTQI plus rights organization based in Toronto and New York. Scotiabank will offer financial support to the organization, which is involved in safely resettling LGBTQI plus individuals who are facing persecution around the globe. So we want to thank Scotiabank for that work. And with that, we're wrap on this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Please share the episode with a friend and feel free to leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Let us know what you want to hear in future on Policy Speaking. I'd like to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast and everything else happen. I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.